Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI 101, we talked about the First World War in terms of the old system of spheres of influence falling apart due to the stresses of the war. This time, we're going to look at the newer, more familiar political template of the nation-state and examine how well it weathered the difficult four years of the Great War. Let's begin. All right, we're back on HI 101 here with Ethan Blesky. Hey. How you doing? Good. We've been talking about some pretty bad scenes out of world war one woof and not even like battles and stuff just like complete political collapse and yeah social strife and yeah just, yeah how about we talk about some some nice modern liberal nation states because really this is what this is all about right yeah. this conflict is about spheres of influence versus nation states yeah and you know a couple get on one side and a couple get on the other it's not exactly a one-to-one match no. but if you look at the if you look at the players fifty or hundred years out, it's it's pretty clear which uh, which system is working. It's out essentially the, best. the death of empires and the birth of or not the birth, but the you know taking over of republics. It was like their debutante ball. Yeah, like they've been around for a while, but you know what, world, they're here. It's <laughs> <laughs> a fantastic analogy. <laughs> well, what better place to start than France? <laughs> Uh, I mean, France had had a rough long century. What They're still going to have some rough times. What with the revolution and then the Napoleon and then the next republic and then another Napoleon. Yeah. And now they're on their third republic after the 1870 defeat yeah. of Napoleon III. Yeah. Uh, that would be the, the Franco-Prussian War, by the way. We talked yeah. about that uh, a little bit before. France had been the biggest player in European politics for so long that Germany showing up on the stage just, oh, it irked them. Oh, it made man. them mad. Well, I mean, they were the, used to being the, like the biggest ones and the most powerful ones. Yeah. And, and and France was Europe. We we were the continental power. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and eighteen seventy shattered that in dramatic Bismarckian fashion. Oh, Bismarck. And France had their nose out of joint about it. They lost yeah. Alsace-Lorraine uh, as part of the again. <laughs> Eh, first first before ah <laughs> i think you're thinking of the second world war one where at the end of first world war france yep. got alsace lorraine back, back and then yeah yeah anyways we're, we're way ahead of ourselves sorry you know their, their their foreign policy was based pretty much entirely on two things yeah uh the colonization of africa yep and the opposition of germany yep they that that was that was a core that was a that was a pillar of their foreign policy deep-seated it's 
Yep. It's right in there. To, to the point where they were willing to make nice with Britain over yeah. the whole thing. I mean, they, like we mentioned briefly before, they were the primary architects of the Triple Entente. Yeah. They made peace with Russia. They made peace with Britain. They mm-hmm. got Britain to make peace with Russia, where Britain had been supporting Japan against Russia only yeah. two years before the Triple Entente was signed. Yeah. That's that's some that's some next level politics right there. Some real good diplomacy there, France. Yep, good work, guys. Real good. It's I don't think it can be stated enough that like that's to to go to Britain for help in this. They've been enemies since forever. Since forever, pretty much. Yeah. Well, uh, the you know the modern uh, the founding of modern Britain is considered the the Battle of Hastings, and that's yeah. just a bunch of normans who were vikings but yeah. were, were french vikings yep. invading britain so yeah. you know all went downhill from there pretty much <laughs> culminating in, in you know the napoleonic wars and, yeah. and other regional uh, skirmishes with france throughout the 19th century and they were willing to put all of that aside they hated germany so much at this yeah. point which is kind of wild and i mean they were deeply really they were deeply invested in maintaining the balance set out in 1815 right that congress of vienna where we got the the five spheres of uh, of power that we talked about the last yep. time, because it worked well for them, because mm-hmm. it kept them in a in a position of dominance. And when it stopped being Prussia and started being, you know, the Second Reich, the German Empire, yeah, it threatened to upset that. It, mm-hmm. it threatened to put everyone in a position where one of the one of the spheres could actually become too big to oppose. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get a Napoleon, and no one knows that better than France. Yeah. They were a little bit blindsided when the Schlieffen plan kind of worked a little bit. They, yeah. they weren't quite prepared. And basically the entire war was fought on French soil. And, yeah. and they paid dearly for it in countless ways. I mean, there were there were 1.7 million French killed in this war. There were, yeah. uh, you know, over 4 million wounded from a population of 40 million. Like, think about that. Like 10% of the population was wounded in the war. Yeah. Like, I... Again, the, the the numbers just sort of at some point stopped making any sense. Yeah. Over 2% of the population was killed in that war. And what's more, I, I mean, you don't have four years of trench warfare and massive artillery campaigns and tanks and yeah. trench systems and all of this without significant like physical damage to the landscape. All that farmland is, is now... How long did it take for it to become usable again? A very, very long a time. A very long time. And 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 food was such a big thing in this war. Yeah. I mean, people were starving in Paris mm-hmm. in the streets because all the food went to the German soldiers. Uh, y- y- to, to the German soldiers? After they had taken... Oh, I see what you mean. Um, after they had taken France, right? Oh, well, they, they didn't entirely take France. No. But, but... Uh, pa- Paris was never, was never taken in World War I. It never made it that far west. But in any case, yes, there there were... But they were taking French food. I'm sorry, I should have been more clear with that. No, I I, I, I got you now. Yeah, I mean, that, that farmland was at a premium, and I mean, they, they weren't actually very good growing years. Like, 1916 in particular mm-hmm. was just had bad weather, and yeah. that's a thing that happens, and normally when it happens, it's kind of like, oh, well, who's going to be a little extra expensive this year, and farmers are going to have to work extra hard to get the crops next year, and we'll all pull through this together. Yeah. When you're in the middle of total war, and really this was the first... Um, war, yeah. sort of uh, experiments with total war where you have a home front and you have the mobilization of an entire nation's GDP towards mm-hmm. waging war. Yeah. That's, that's devastating. And then to physically lose that farmland to like, to blow up the farmland yeah. is just, just very, very hard on a country. And I mean, 
that at the end of the war that that comes through very strongly in france's position because when they go to the table at the at the paris conferences the prime minister uh, georges clemenceau he's looking to draw blood mm-hmm. he is out to punish the germans for what they've done to his country yeah and it's hard to blame the guy it's it's pretty easy to be sympathetic it's very easy to be sympathetic i mean the germans at the end of the war took a lot of the brunt and we'll talk about this a little yes. bit more but a lot of the reason for that is they were the ones that were still in existence yeah out of the out of the central powers yeah and for france in particular it was german soldiers that they were fighting on the trenches yeah not ottomans yeah not austrians yeah germans so they go to the table looking for major reparations out of germany they see this war as as something that they deserve compensation for mm-hmm. and went after that stuff really zealously see when when the other powers go to the table we already talked about britain kind of being a bit of a moderate force the the united states comes to the table under the guidance of woodrow wilson as being an incredibly moderate incredibly sensitive voice yeah in these in these negotiations because i mean woodrow wilson starts out the the conf the, the conference is talking about things like victory without defeat yeah you know this idea of like okay well the war is over we just let's leave the war where it is. Yep. It's done. Yeah. Let's just leave it. Everyone got hurt. Let's just yeah. walk away and lick our wounds. Mm-hmm. And to some extent that ends up tempering the French attitude towards uh, reparations, but it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't stop it. And no. I mean, the, the, the reparations are one of the most famous things about the end of world war one. So I, I don't think it comes as any surprise to, uh, to say that a, a lot of this stuff ended up, kind of leaning towards france's favor in all of this yeah we, we should also mention belgium i mean poor belgium was yeah it's it's more or less the same situation as france except they're way smaller and there was way more brutal fighting yeah uh in flanders and and that region of belgium the, the whole country was just a mess afterwards yeah but yeah they they, they all go to the, the table the, the french delegation goes to the table basically ignoring warnings that if you make terms too harsh that could come back around and bite us. Like we can't make them yeah. too too harsh, or it's going to cause resentment. It's going to create, you know, this this air of of uh, victimhood in in the defeated parties. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like you even get Belgian delegation going, like, no, we're good. Like just leave us alone. Yeah. Like we don't need all of these reparations. Just leave us alone, please. Yeah. Don't don't put Germany in a position where they feel like they're being victimized in this Mm -hmm. because you know where they're going to start again it's us (laughs) we just don't want to yeah france just doesn't listen they they don't they don't they can't yeah i I suppose is maybe a better way of putting it Mm -hmm. and they also go after german overseas colonies so a lot of the african colonies end up going to france some some do go to britain as well but you also see france in uh in the middle east taking some of those former ottoman uh territories as well yeah basically they're yeah they're 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 very much uh, after financial compensation for everything that's happened and, and a lot of the financial compensation was basically pension for for the french soldiers right um it was partially put towards that yeah absolutely and um and it's pension also, payouts for for widows yeah, yeah yeah absolutely but i mean it was also put towards like their other war debts like oh, because yeah, i mean absolutely. war is not war is not cheap yeah it's so it's put towards like reconstruction but it's also put towards all of the money that it owes to the united states from mm-hmm. having borrowed it through the yep. earlier phases of the war it's put towards stimulating french economy like uh, like industry yeah um 
you know, keep in mind that the 1920s, as good as they were for the United States and this whole idea of like the roaring 20s and all of that, Europe was not having a good time out of it. No. Britain was doing okay-ish. Yeah. France, the only reason that they didn't fall into an even deeper economic recession than the U.S. in the 30s was because of these reparations. Yeah. They were using these payments to stave off that uh, that stagnancy or even depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so short term, they came out... I You know, I, I don't even want to say that they came out well because they're starting, you know, at the end of the war, they're starting so far down yeah. on this list of, of things that are okay that it's, it's really not fair to frame it as... No. You know, hey, they bounced back. All right. No, not really. They had a lot of work to do. Yeah. The repayments helped. But really, in terms of foreign policy, what they looked to was the League of Nations. We haven't really talked about the League of Nations that much, yeah. but it's the precursor to the United Nations. It was an idea that was originally proposed by uh, actually some British uh, political scientists, okay. um, but was most famously part of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, which yes. was basically... <laughs> The United States was basically the only country that published war aims, which is basically, hey, we're at war. What are we trying to gain out of this? Okay. One of the points was the establishment of an international body that would help govern international law and be committed to the cause of world peace, basically. Mm -hmm. And we'll get a little more into the 14 points later. But (laughs) France saw the, the League of Nations as partially being a way to prevent what happened to it. Yeah. from happening ever again, yeah. which they were sincerely committed to. But they also saw it as a mechanism through which they could compel Germany to continue its reparations payments. <laughs> and so France really goes into that well-intentioned, but also a little bit hot-headed. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I I hesitate to make it sound like I'm laying any sort of blame because I, I can't imagine anything more understandable than going through the, those those four years and not coming away with yeah. you know really strong feelings of... of Enmity? Sure, I was going to say retribution. Yeah. The fact that they limit it to economic, you know, monetary payments is uh, yeah, almost reserved compared to, I'm, I'm sure, the, the general sentiment of the French population at this point in time. Let's, let's talk about Germany while we're on the Western Front. Okay. Before the war, German unification had really depended a lot on the diplomatic balance crafted by statesman Otto von Bismarck. Very Again, influential did a whole episode on this dude, well, on, on German unification in general, uh, that basically covers the entire period between German unification, you know, early Germany, German unification attempts yeah. uh, after the Napoleonic Wars right up until World War One, mm-hmm. And really, it just doesn't work without Bismarck's guiding hand because he worked this, this really interesting balance between diplomacy and warfare that, you know, the... The term realpolitik was basically coined to describe his version of yeah. foreign policy. And he led Germany on the presupposition that you never antagonize both France and Russia at the same time because <laughs> a two-front war is a losing war. That's you yeah. know, Otto von Bismarck is, is, is on record, is on paper saying a two-front war is how Germany loses a war. Yeah. Antagonizing both France and Russia is the end of Germany. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's right. Yep. At least for for that version of of Germany, twice. Yes, twice. <laughs> You're right. You're right. But you know, Wilhelm II, like we talked about a little bit earlier, he just he didn't just... he get into power and basically immediately fire Bismarck. It took him a little while to fire Bismarck. Um, okay, but he never really liked Bismarck that much, mostly yeah. because Bismarck 
saw him for what he was, which was an incredibly inexperienced and entitled young man. Yeah. And Wilhelm did not like being called out on it. Yeah. What's more, Wilhelm I, his father, had basically let Bismarck do what Bismarck needed to do because he trusted Bismarck because he had seen Bismarck getting results. Getting results in action, doing all this amazing stuff for germany yeah and he he basically stepped back and 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 allowed bismarck to be bismarck so wilhelm ii comes up and bismarck goes okay well i think we should do this and and wilhelm's like why i'm i'm the kaiser here i will do what i like yeah who are you get out of here i don't care what my dad thought of you la 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 yeah i don't have to listen to you pretty much and it's it's just (sighs) the word petulant springs to mind every time i think of wilhelm the second second yeah he seems like a child pitching a tantrum and he doesn't seem like he should be a real person a little bit yeah he seems like a bit of a caricature You're he right. seems like too much of a caricature i mean he had he, he even had the, the physical deformities mm-hmm. to go along with it he had a, a was his left arm yeah that was shriveled yeah yeah it was it was uh it was shriveled he was never able to use it properly yeah and he, he definitely had a little bit of an inferiority complex in terms of other European leaders. Yeah. Where a lot of the decisions that he made didn't necessarily make sense for Germany, but it only made sense if you examine it from the perspective of someone trying to catch up with their peers. Yeah. Um, Germany didn't need to have uh, African colonies. No. But all the other powers did, so Wilhelm did. Yeah. Bismarck wasn't even a fan of no. the African colonies. He, he, he got one or two and immediately traded one away for a, a more like a, a an island just off of germany that made more sense for them yeah i mean I, I think bismarck already saw which way the wind was blowing in terms of colonialism as a as an economic and political system yeah it wasn't going to last long and it made no sense to get in at the you know at the 11th hour yeah uh, it wasn't going to do yeah. colonies take a while colonies yeah. colonies you need to plant a colony leave it there for a while spend some money on it yeah wait for it to get to a point where it starts feeding money back into the the mother country yeah starting that in the 1880s is not wise no uh but wilhelm saw everyone else getting colonies so he had to get african colonies yeah wilhelm saw britain getting a navy he needed a navy yeah started this whole naval race it's just like come on man like just just calm down a little bit yeah anyways um i, I don't mean to be too hard on on wilhelm the second i mean he's he's in a lot of ways a product of his circumstances oh yeah and and you know the, the more you learn about him, the more sympathetic he comes to be. He loses a little bit of that caricature-like mm-hmm. ridiculousness and becomes a little bit more of a sympathetic character. It's kind um, of sad. Mo- mostly, I-, I think my final sort of analysis of, of Wilhelm II is he-, he really just never should have been in power. He was never a leader. No. Uh, he didn't have any political savvy, really. No. It it seems like he would have made like a really good... like second son to a, a, a royal yeah he would be like a really good prince harry marry that guy off yeah marry that guy off let him let you know what let him let, let him summer in greece yeah <laughs> why not get a tan will help ah uh, and and he almost in certain ways seemed happier after the war after he abdicated which is obviously where this is going the you know yeah germany loses the war wilhelm is is forced to abdicate and Basically goes into retirement. Yeah. Lives for quite a long time afterwards, actually. Met Hitler. Apparently didn't like him much. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, Hitler was looking for his support. Okay. Again, this this idea of continuity. Continuity right? being, power, yeah. Being important, the the stability of, of uh, succession. Yeah. Wilhelm wasn't, allowed, wasn't willing to offer that. So no. 
Germany was hit very hard in this war as well. It's it's you know, sometimes it's made out as though they they kind of got off easily or something like that. I, I never understand why uh, the the military casualties. Well, in comparison to France, right? Okay. The mi- mil- military casualties were were incredibly high. There were over two million killed. Yeah. Uh, and and well over four million wounded. They paid dearly for that conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and near the end, you know, Wilhelm abdicated, you know, before the, the armistice actually went through because he saw the writing on the wall. It's yep. kind of like, well, you know what? I don't want to deal with the succession thing. I quit. Y'all can figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I know. But this basically effectively creates the Weimar Republic on the yep. spot, which is the Republican government that basically fills the void between uh, World War One and the, the rise of the Third Reich. Yeah. But I mean... Like we talked about in the France section, the reparation payments that were leveled against Germany were just... Absolutely massive. Yeah, I, I, I think I figured it to... If I did this right, I figured it around uh, $175 billion US in today's terms. Yep. Is that the initial sum or after they lowered it? Because they did, they did lower sum. it. That's the initial sum. That's what they initially asked for. Okay. And the idea behind those those reparations was... They were expected to pay back the damage that they did in France, to like to France, to yeah. French people, to French farms, to French property, yeah. which, you know, is just a thing that happens in wars. It's not unusual. Yeah. The sum that they were asking for was... Was massive. It was high, but there is this myth that it was intentionally unpayable. It was well within the ability of Germany to pay back the amount that was being asked for. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Because... There's a quote that that floats around every once in a while that says that like they couldn't they weren't able to pay off the interest. That's not true. No, there's there's a lot of half truths and and complete fabrications floating around about the the reparations leveled by the Treaty of Versailles. Um, the reality of it is that Germany was never really that willing to pay it. Yeah, and that they never really took the types of steps that countries usually would take to repay war debts. Yeah. For example, in the Franco-Prussian War, France owed Prussia reparations at the end okay. of the war because they lost. Yeah. France actually paid them back relatively quickly by borrowing from its citizens in the form of bonds. Bonds. Things okay. like that, which is common practice. I mean, war bonds are are something that you saw throughout pretty much every country in world war one especially yeah. like even more in world war two yeah it's it's just a thing that happens it's a yeah you know you also had uh, lots of countries putting in new forms of taxation over world war one to help pay yeah. for a total war this is where a lot of income taxes come into play right okay yeah. um which just kind of didn't exist before germany wasn't willing to borrow from its citizens to okay. pay back the the war reparations they essentially stopped paying reparations altogether within about six years, basically as soon as Allied forces stopped occupying uh, customs checkpoints. Okay. So I I believe it's 1924. They just didn't pay anything for like a good three years. Okay. And that's even before, you know, Hitler comes into power, blustering about how they'll never pay it back. Yeah. And, you know, they, they were facing their own hardships. No one was paying them back for the damage that was done in, in Germany. Yeah. Uh, their, war depth, their war debts were astronomical. Uh, the toll on the population was you know horrible uh the winter of 1916 was known as the the turnip winter uh because okay. people were reduced to eating turnips because they ran out of basically everything else yeah and i, I mean for context that's considered animal feed 
Um, okay. At, at this point in time, that's that's what you feed to the pigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they, they weren't immune from those same hardships. And and so, you know, also after the war, you get this runaway inflation of the of the mark. Yeah. Which some people will blame on the reparations payments. I've seen other economists basically say not really. In fact, there were early studies that said that while they were making reparations payments, it was actually helping to keep inflation down. And the majority of the hyperinflation that occurred uh, occurred during years when they weren't making any payments whatsoever. I'm interesting. I was I always thought it, the, that the uh, inflation problem coincided more with the Great Depression and no, it started in the twenties. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm not an economist. I'm not great at evaluating these kinds of of uh, sources, and mm-hmm. they are very contradictory. And as I said, you can find basically any information you want to find if you're looking for it when it yeah. comes to German reparations. So it's it's a little bit of a tricky subject. Yeah. So I don't want to spend as much time on that, even though we already have. Sure. Um, reparations are a thing that happens. Yep. By the way, they finished paying back in 2010. Mm. Yeah, good for them. They hadn't paid since like 1932. I think they restarted in 1995. Yeah. Oh. Um, so. Oh, oh yeah. Got to take care of that. <laughs> well, it was it was a function of the 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 reunification of Germany after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. They, okay. They, that, oh, oh yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah, they they decided to pay off the rest of that pesky war debt. Yeah, which is kind of interesting, but anyways, no, that that wasn't. I don't think that was the main problem personally uh, that came out of the the Treaty of Versailles for Germany. There's something called Article Two Thirty One of the Treaty of Versailles. Oh, it's known as the War Guilt Clause. I've heard of this. Here's the issue with the War Guilt Clause: when a lawyer sees the word guilt, yeah, that means criminally liable. When your average person sees the word guilt, they think of it in a much more emotional, personal mm-hmm. sense of blame and responsibility. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about blame, not about liability. Yeah. And when you get a, tri- a treaty drawn up by a bunch of lawyers that use the word guilt in kind of a very specific manner. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that usually the politicians and the diplomats step in and go, you know, about that one there. Yeah. Maybe we don't use, need to use the word guilt. Yeah. Especially when we had that talk about victory without defeat. Yeah. You know, and all that. And France basically waved that off as being like, well, they, you know, they are technically guilty and eh, they'll, they'll be fine. They'll get over it. Yeah. They didn't really. I, I mean, that, that clause, th- there's a reason that I have the number written down. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. It was a big deal in the German consciousness. <laughs> They weren't willing to take the blame for World War One. They didn't start World War One. Yeah. As far as they were concerned, Serbia did, or maybe Austria-Hungary, but neither of those things, you know, neither of them were taking any responsibility for it. Where was the Ottoman guilt? Where was the Austrian guilt? Where was the Hungarian guilt? Mm-hmm. Why? Why is this all being put on Germany? Yeah. And the answer is because France was one of the big four at the table, so, you know, they had they had a lot of political capital to spend on putting it on Germany. Yeah. But. You know, it really stuck in the German consciousness quite quite badly. Yeah. And all of the terms of the Treaty of Versailles seemed like overkill to the Germans uh, or to, to most German people at this time. The reparations seemed too high. Losing that many overseas colonies seemed too harsh. The, yeah. The border changes seemed unnecessary. You know, Total it's, it's demilitarization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the loss of Alsace-Lorraine is one thing. I yeah. get that. You know, we just took that 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, having Poland created out of a giant chunk of 
our territory. Yeah. That seems unreasonable. There yeah. hasn't been a Poland for a couple hundred years. Why does there need to be a Poland now? <laughs> like, why Why are we, you know? Yeah. And for for us now, looking back at a time that's basically creating the world that we live in, seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Because we're all about systems of, of you know, self-determining nation states. Yeah. Uh, it seems like a pretty great system. <laughs> but... I mean, they're establishing this. They're setting precedent. Mm-hmm. And it seems unfair. And then to go and lump on this whole war guilt thing? Come on. And then there's another factor, which is that when the armistice went in place on November 11th, yeah, the battle lines were still in France. The Germans were being pushed back, mind you. Yeah. But they were still in France. And it created what's known as the knife-in-the-back narrative about the german command during world war one which was basically that the kaiser and all of his kind of weak noble buddies left everybody high and dry by surrendering too soon and giving the allies too much and that it created an environment of hardship for the german people okay and this is the narrative that the 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 fascists end up riding into power yeah in the 1930s like this is this is this is the stuff that that hitler campaigns on Mm -hmm. is is you know we've been lied to we've been betrayed we've been treated too harshly yeah we don't deserve this we deserve better yeah and the trouble with something like that is that there are grains of truth yeah absolutely absolutely there are yeah it's it's weird it's weird maneuvering my guests into a place where they have to <laughs> say that, well, maybe Hitler got some things right. <laughs> um, but it's it's difficult because of that narrative that we talked about in the first half of, you know, the world the Second World War being very, very cut and dry, black yeah. and white, good and evil. Moral superiority. Where it's like, no, that. no, that's not what human beings are like. Yeah. It's just not how that works. And you don't get somebody like Hitler without at least some level of instability and mm-hmm. some some sort of scapegoat because you don't get that level of nationalism without something to get to rally against and that's what we saw with the old austro-hungarian empire or the ottoman empires where you have groups like the slavs or the poles or the arabs asserting their right to nationhood yeah against an oppressor for nazi germany that oppressor is the rest of europe yeah and they're using the same sort of narrative and they're using the same sort of system that this is in a our lot of right ways to nationhood is endorsed by the allies yeah. right it's it's encouraged by the allies to mm-hmm. some extent and and it's just twisted around and turned against them yeah. by the nazi party which is a really interesting development and you know there's always this argument while we're on germany and and cuz you can't you can't talk about germany without it there's always this argument of like the the inevitability of nazi germany which is a terrible terrible argument i hate it so much nothing is ever inevitable um no (laughs) but what there is is an argument over whether or not there were actually two world wars or whether or not the second world war was simply a continuation continuation of the first world war with a generation long break to regenerate i i would say that sounds more reasonable i've never liked it personally and and here's why uh there's nothing about the way that world war one ends that presupposes the rise of nazi germany if anything uh it should have gone communist if you were reading yes. tea leaves in about 1922 yeah there's no reason it shouldn't have uh the fact that it didn't was a series of kind of 
crazy coincidences interesting yeah coincidences and 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 maneuverings and yeah you know actions by exceptional individuals and butterfly effect societal changes and all sorts yeah. of things that you can't really measure yeah however what i would say is that i don't think there can be a world war ii in the way that world war ii took place if you don't have a world war one to set it up okay which i know doesn't sound that much different than inevitability nope no it, it, it sounds different but it's definitely different it's... you need you, you you don't get someone like hitler or like the entire nazi party without some sort of unifying myth yeah and it doesn't matter how true that unifying myth is as long as there's some truth to it yeah there can be lots of lies and there were lots of lies yes. involved but maybe the reparations were a little too harsh yeah maybe they didn't need to include the war guilt clause maybe they didn't need to take so much land or so many colonies mm-hmm. and you know that's easy to say 100 years later looking back but what is certainly true is that that created a certain climate that that allowed all of those things to come to come about yeah why don't we move on from germany because germany gets talked about enough when it comes to world war one yep. not that they aren't a central player but the, the focus on germany i think is a relic of the focus that was placed on them in the paris conferences and uh whether or not they're guilty their protest that they're not the only guilty ones is absolutely true and definitely still stands. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's leave them where they are and uh, and move on. Let's run through Italy real quick. <laughs> Italy's funny because, you know, they, they really were only unified in 1870 when the, the Kingdom of Italy took over Rome, yeah. hosted the Papal States, and basically ended over a thousand years of temporal papal power yeah. uh, in, in Italy just kind of a weird thing to think back on now yeah pope having land and armies and whatnot yeah what you doing cut that out holy armies yeah yikes they weren't nearly as strongly positioned as germany was though because no german unification is just it's a masterpiece mm-hmm. i can't rave enough about bismarck oh my goodness guy had his flaws but man he knew how to run a country yeah italy was a little more haphazard also as soon as they were founded, almost before they were founded, uh, Austria-Hungary was kind of nipping away at their their borders. <laughs> there was a significant Italian population in the Austro-Hungarian Empire mm-hmm. just because they occupied land sort of at the very northeast section of Italy. Yeah. And they, they kind of hated that. They kind of hated Austria-Hungary. They really didn't like them. Yeah. They also felt that they deserved uh, a number of other regions outside of what we would currently think of as italy okay. um, for example dalmatia which is basically on the other side of the of the aegean sea or sorry not the aegean sea it's like across the the mediterranean from italy okay so basically where yugoslavia ends up being okay yeah they there a, a very long time ago there were italian states there okay they felt that they should still have those um which is kind of the the root of all of the post world war one conflicts in the uh in in the uh the treaty segment yeah they joined the triple alliance partially over french seizure of tunisia they were outraged by it they felt that they should have tunisia okay it's old carthage right so yep. hey why not partially out of concern over vulnerability to austria-hungary yeah they figured if they made an alliance with austria-hungary austria-hungary would, ha- would have to stop taking their territories yeah i guess it works it's it's a position of weakness it's it's what you do when you are in a, a very weak position uh, they also hadn't industrialized as much, had they? They hadn't really had a chance. They just didn't do it as well. Well, I, I mean, when, when Germany unified, they 
basically made industrialization a core tenet of the yeah. German nation. They made it part of the German national identity. Yeah. Italy was nowhere near uh, as organized. Yeah. They were kind of doing the best they could with what they got. Yeah. And, and you know, part of that is because they have Austria-Hungary sitting on their borders, threatening them. They'd been to war with Austria-Hungary, you know, three times in the last couple of decades. It was kind of yeah. like, well, we should, we should probably do something about this. <laughs> and, you know, the confidence in Italy actually maintaining that alliance was so low that basically everyone assumed that they would break the alliance as soon as war broke out. <laughs> it was just kind of on paper. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, Austrian high command had war plans against Italy in place for more than a decade before the outbreak of the war, just assuming <laughs> that they just would not stick with them, despite yeah. the fact that they had a defensive pact with them. Yeah. So, I, I mean, when they refused to enter the war at outset, no one was really surprised. Basically, they managed to do that on a technicality of the treaty because Austria-Hungary attacked Serbia before Serbia attacked Austria-Hungary yep. uh, in terms of like actual formal declarations of war. Yeah. Uh, and so that gave them an out. And then in 1915, Britain promised territorial prizes if they would just go ahead and attack Austria's southern border for them, please. Yeah. They said, sure, why not? This is the best deal we've gotten so far. Yeah. And went for it. They basically spent the whole war fighting Austria. They were a major factor in wearing them down, mm -hmm. you know, outside of Austria's own internal issues. Yeah. And, you know, they, they joined with Britain, France, and uh, the United States as one of the big four at the table. Yeah. That being said, they realized really quickly that they weren't necessarily a priority for some of the other major allied players. No. They wanted that Dalmatia that we were talking about. But the United States was particularly interested in Balkan self-determination okay and they had already promised that area to yugoslavia mm -hmm. and they weren't willing to concede it to italy over the independence of yugoslavia yeah italy left the table in boycott they just had enough they were sick of being treated like second rate allies yeah again can't really blame them that much i mean i'm not sure if they necessarily deserved as much territorial territorial expansion as they wanted yeah but they weren't being taken seriously by their allies and they knew it and they hated it and i understand that yep you know they didn't really come out of this war all that well it took until the 1970s to pay off the debt that they incurred Oof. um the economic burden of the war didn't match up with the rewards that they got out of it they yeah. weren't really receiving any reparations payments from anyone yeah they didn't get the territorial expansion that they were hoping for yeah it ended up being a sunk cost and it led to economic depression and you know they had a really bad 1920s and that's the sort of thing that leads to things like nationalism and radicalization and fascism and benito mussolini yep and you know it's it's um it's always easy at this point to kind of draw a straight line from the end of the war to fascism because it happened in several places yeah but you know in in, in this case they were they were treated a little bit shabbily by by the rest of the allies who were just happily carving up africa and the yeah. middle east and things like that and didn't really give italy a slice of that pie despite their really important role against and uh, promises to well exactly exactly so yeah didn't come out of it with you know didn't didn't really have a great war and it really set them up for the the course of italian history that we know through the second world war yeah why don't we take a quick break there and uh when we come back i have uh just a couple more to, to to go over um because man there's so many things that tra changed just so drastically in this four-year period so fast so fast and it's just four four years it's like think, where were you four years ago doing pretty much the same thing P 
pretty much the same thing. I kind of feel that way too. <laughs> I feel like not much has changed in the last four years. Yeah. How many empires have fallen in that time? Yeesh. I don't like those specific four years. I don't think that many. <laughs> Anyways, no. um, yeah, we'll we'll take a break, and uh, and when we come back, we'll talk about the British Commonwealth yeah. uh, and and a few others. So. <laughs> Okay, we're here on HI101 with Ethan Blesky. Hello. And we, you know, covered some success stories, some uh, not-so-successful stories <laughs> uh, in the last section, but we've got a few more to go. I want to start out with Japan just because it's one of those things where, for a long time, my sense of world history was kind of like Japan was up and coming and up and coming, and then there was the Russo-Japanese War, and then question mark? <laughs> and then the 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 rapid... Um, expansion of the the 1930s in the yeah. in the Pacific theater and it's kind of like well what were they up to for the, that whole time? I mean the answer is they fought in World War One yeah. and I think a lot of people don't actually realize that. Yep. So you know before before the war they'd been you know rapidly expanding since the 1860s they had gone through the the Meiji Restoration yep. there was the forced reopening of uh, <laughs> if anybody did the Industrial Revolution right it oh, was them. No kidding. You know the the ports were forced uh, forcibly reopened by. Uh, Commodore Matthew Perry of the United States Navy. Yep. Drove a battleship in and went, we're trading now. Yeah. His picture's just spectacular. <laughs> Do you see it? I have not. Oh, the jowls. Oh, oh the jowls. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, he could have been British. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's got that. He's got that kind of air about him on the, on the portrait. Beautiful. Anyways, you know, they, they went through this massive, um, they, they kind of went well, you know, uh, if we have to modernize, we're going to modernize right. And yeah. they just kind of did. They they picked all the best experts from every field, brought them in. Consulted. British Navy, French schools, German Parliament? Something like that. Was, yeah, that, that's, the, that's, was that the... Yeah, that's that's the general structure of the of the society. Yeah. yeah. But even on a more granular level, I mean... Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, when it comes to building a, a Japanese Navy... You buy the hulls from the British, and you yeah. buy the instruments from the Dutch, and you buy the engines from the Germans, and you know it's it's like or sorry the gun the guns from the Germans, yeah, engines from the French. Uh, it's been a while, uh, but <laughs> basically, and, and you don't just buy it from them. You bring in British hull makers. You teach you get them to teach you how to build a dry dock. You get them yeah. to teach you how to build a hull from start to finish. Yeah, and then you go, yeah, we don't want you in our country anymore. Goodbye, and you send them home. So you can do it yourself. D didn't they go on like this grand tour for like four or five years and just learn everything? Oh, oh, well, more than four or five years. But yeah, they were sending out experts in every field yeah. to every country to learn as much as they could. Yeah. And 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 yeah, they, they just really made the whole process of modernization as efficient as possible. And it, it worked out relatively well for them. Um, I, I have a whole episode on the major restoration. Yeah. Lots more detail in there. But, you know, it with with that kind of expansion comes conflict inevitably and some yep. you know wars with the the chinese and then the uh the russo-japanese war 1904-1905 in which they actually won to basically everyone's surprise yep but they did have support from the british in all of this they had been an ally kind of a secret ally since 1902 yeah and you know they they ended up uh, at the beginning of world war one with uh, you know, a world-class Navy, mm -hmm. some expansion into China, some expansion into surrounding islands to yep. take natural resources, feeling real good about having defeated Russia, you know, a, a supposedly unbeatable European power. Yeah. 
And when war breaks out, they kind of go, okay, Britain, hey, uh, what should we do? Yeah. And Britain went, uh, any of the South Pacific German holdings? Can you just look just after those? Because our fleet is busy, tied yeah. up in the North Sea, keeping the, the Germans there. Yeah. And the Japanese went, great, these are ours now. Uh, <laughs> did the same on mainland China with the with the, the German territories there. Yep. Yeah. Long, long history with China and, and, and conflict there, you know, stretching well into World War II, as we all know. But yeah, really what they were interested in doing was creating a Pacific sphere of influence. Yeah. They were still modeling it on that old system of, of political balance. But yeah. it was a system that they understand, uh, understood well enough. You create an empire, you subjugate, you take advantage of, and that works yeah. out pretty well, especially when you have the means to do so. Uh-huh. By the end of the war holding power in former German territories. They gained a seat at the Paris Peace Conference, but weren't terribly happy with the proceedings. Yeah. Um, you know, they did gain a permanent seat at the League of Nations out of it, but at the same time, they were really concerned that they weren't being treated as fairly as all of these uh, white countries. Let's call it what it is. Yeah. And in fact, at one point requested a clause be added to the treaties guaranteeing uh, protection from basically ethnic prejudice, uh, oh. which was not added very yep. conspicuously. And obviously they were very unhappy about that. Mm-hmm. Um, they came to the table having done their part and hoping to be rewarded for it and uh, felt a little bit short-shrifted. Yeah. And again, understandably so. They, they added other allied countries uh, in the Russian Civil War. They, they played some parts, you know, loaning their, their navies services yeah. after the war. But, you know, just never really lost that feeling that they were not considered equal by these other allied countries. Yeah. And again, you know, kind of, kind of understandably so. Yeah. But once again, what that marginalization leads to is nationalism radicalization yeah they went through an economic downturn similar to many other places in the in the world mm-hmm. and all of this leads to this militarization and this you know pseudo-fascist yeah. um imperial expansion that you know in many ways you know it, it it predates world war ii we 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 traditionally talk about world war ii starting in 1939 with the with the invasion of poland but yeah. japan got a head start on all of that they were already well into it in the 30s yeah kind of so, you know, once again, we see what happens when you fetishize to some extent self-determination, but then in kind of the same stroke limit uh, a nation's uh, ability to self-determine. Yeah. It, it's not, it doesn't go well. They don't take kindly to it. No. That is kind of a building block of fascism, isn't it? Well, I mean, I, how else do you respond to that? Yeah, uh, as as a nation, when that happens to you, yeah, you can either choose to accept your lot in life, which isn't really traditionally a a, a characteristic of a nation, except Russia. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, you know, the funny thing about Russia is even even when that might be true, they usually think that they're the ones in power. They yeah. just, you know, it's Russia's Russia's history is so frustrating in that manner. There's there's so many times where they see themselves as being treated unfairly when re- really it seems like they're mostly treating themselves unfairly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and again, easy in retrospect, but there's there's a couple of times where you wish you could reach back through history and you know, give somebody a little bit of a shade. Yeah. 
but yeah, you know, you gotta accept your lot, which never works out, or look to alternative systems because yeah. strong systems t- today self-determination works well because the vast majority of countries in the world are self-determining democratic mm-hmm. nation states yeah. and that's a system that works well for us but the world of 1918 isn't one of strong independent democratic nation states it's one of old power systems trying to muddle their way through how self-determination uh, could work through the lens of imperialism and political level racism. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work quite as well as post-World War II. No. Not even saying that post-World War II was that great, but it was a lot closer to what it needed to be than, yeah. than post-World War I. You can't talk about a nation's right to self-determination and then spend the rest of the conference you know, carving up Africa. Yeah. That's not... And, and, and you know, you, you have to be careful to judge things in, in terms of the context of their times and all of that. But when you when you do the same thing to your political allies who aided you in the war, how can you see that as anything but hypocritical? Yeah. And and so what do you do? Do you go communist? Well, it's not working out so well for Russia. Yeah. But maybe it's a solution. Yeah. Right? You know, that now we're taking out this whole issue of imperialism by kind of leveling the economic playing field mm-hmm. and you know, if, if Marx is right about the whole thing, it should really take care of the whole nationalism issue yeah. eventually when you get to this whole, you know, post-history, one-world society type yeah. thing. Or you can look to fascism, which, you know, in the, in the context of the 1930s ends up being more of a, almost a, near, a, a neo-imperialism where you're going, well, if we're not being respected on the world stage, maybe we just need to get strong enough to to, to be respected. take that respect. Yeah, to seize it. And that's what you see in, in Italy, and that's yep. what you see in Germany, and that's what you see in Japan. And of course, I mean, why wouldn't why wouldn't they? Spain. Yeah, Spain. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's you know, again, looking back 100 years and telling people what they should have done instead is a very easy thing to do. When yeah. You've, you know, you've got the, the next 100 years of, uh, uh, of, of context. Mm-hmm. And... I fully believe that everyone that came to the table at the Paris peace, uh, peace talks did so with the best of intentions. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's reasons that they talked about it as the war to end all wars. There's really, you know, if, if, if you didn't have good intentions, you wouldn't be setting up the league of nations. If you didn't have good intentions, you wouldn't be fighting for Bosnian independence or creating yeah. Poland out of virtually nothing or, yeah. you know, like those, those aren't things that, those aren't realistic things to do. Those are idealistic things to do. Yeah. They're just... And they're based on the ideal of self-determination. It's just that they're so they're colored. They're just tinted. Yeah, they're so tinted by the lens of imperialism and by yeah. the lens of racism that they didn't realize when they were contradicting themselves. It reminds me a lot of, uh, actually, the writing of the U.S. Constitution, where it's kind of like, all men are created equal, you know, little asterisk, and, yeah. you know, we'll deal with this in 80 years, I guess. <laughs> it's 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 tough stuff and you kind of wonder well how how did they hold these two thoughts in their head at the same time and 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 live with them and the answer is well that's just that's just how they were that's just how they were that's just who they were yeah and it's not an individual issue it's a a societal issue and those Mm -hmm. things change over time and someday i'm sure people will look back at us and be very very disappointed with our social outlooks as well yeah and i'm i'm I certainly hope so in certain ways. Uh, you know what I mean? Because that means that things are hopefully progressing. Yes. Um, you cross your fingers on things like that. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, when, when, when you treat people this badly and they have the means to implement uh, fascist systems, it's not a good thing, but I, I see why they do. Mm-hmm. Anyways, enough on fascism. It's it's absolutely a, an important thing to talk about in terms of outcomes of World War One. But yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of those things that if you explore any more than like surface level, you might as well just do a whole episode on it. Yeah, because <laughs> it's interesting stuff. It really is. Um, I mean, Spain political... lasted until the seventies, uh, something like that. Yeah, it lasted a very long time as a fascist country. Yeah, once you once once you get too deep into it, it it just kind of takes over everything. So yeah, let's let's move on. I yep. want to talk about the Commonwealth, formerly known as the British Empire. Uh, up until the beginning of World War One, Britain still held power in most of its former colonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was naming them things like dominions at this point. Yeah, Canada, eighteen sixty seven, with the British North America Act. Yep, Australia, New Zealand, nineteen oh one. Yep, um, the Dominion of Newfoundland. Independent as of 1907. Yep. Newfoundland, 1907 to 1949. Never forget. Never forget. <laughs> a lot of people don't know that it, that it was its own country for a little while there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's that's a thing that happened. In in fact, it, it would it would actually make a really interesting topic at some point just to do a history of. It was never actually at the Dominion of Newfoundland, but to do the to do a history of the country of Newfoundland would be yeah. kind of interesting. Um, just because such a such an odd little piece of Canadian history. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, despite the fact that all of these countries are being made independent, in terms of like international matters, mm-hmm. they were still considered British. Yeah. Really. You know, anything to do with diplomacy or, or diplomatic relationships, whichever way Britain went, the Commonwealth, or sorry, the, the empire was expected to yeah. uh, follow suit. I mean, even militarily, they're all trained in... Or a lot of them were trained in Britain, weren't they? Uh, systems were designed to be somewhat interchangeable. Yeah. They could all sort of operate basically as the same force when uh, necessary. Uh, to, to, to some extent, yes. Yeah. The The idea was that they would be able to if they, if they had to. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, in reality, Australia and New Zealand were closer to each other than they were necessarily to Britain. Yeah. Canada was kind of doing its whole its its own whole thing, you know, in terms of like war material, things weren't really standardized at this point in time. Yeah. Like you want to look at things like the Ross rifle in in uh, in Canada. Yeah. That was developed specifically for the Canadian military. And I feel like everyone heard about the Ross rifle in, in Canadian history class. I don't know why. It wasn't really that <laughs> important. Yeah. In a long you know, in the grand scheme of things, but it's a Canadian design gun. It worked beautifully in perfect conditions. Yeah. You take it and you dunk it in a trench and it doesn't work so well. All of a sudden. No. <laughs> <laughs> Still prized, apparently, by gun collectors. Hmm. Because if you keep them clean, they're great. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, in any case, they, they were all developing their own their own stuff that way. It's just that, you know, you might have higher level commanders going to uh, Britain for uh, for training. But yeah, declaration of war by Britain meant declaration of war for the entire empire and so when war was declared by britain on germany uh that meant that automatically south africa new zealand australia canada india all of the colonies were immediately at war as well yeah and i mean you know same thing for france right like all of the french colonies were at war as well but the difference with the british empire was those independent nations yeah kind of independent nations mostly independent nations yeah 
you know, before the war, Britain was like Canada was really the test case for this, right? When we were made independent in 1867, you know, basically we had a bunch of politicians go to Britain and be like, hey, we've got this proposal. Maybe we could be independent and you wouldn't have to legislate all of our stuff for us anymore. And then that's a big headache off of, you know, off of your plate and yeah. kind of a big headache off of our plates. And how about it? Yeah. And Queen Victoria went, yeah, okay. Because, you know, up till that point, Canadian law was being legislated in British Parliament. And that's yeah. kind of a pain. And then sent back. Yeah, and... it's a whole thing. You know, let's, let's let the colonies have their yeah. their own parlor, parliaments and it'll be fine. Yeah. There's still a special relationship there, etc. And and really, it was considered very, very close, uh, the, the relationship between them. But they were slowly spinning off countries. Um, yeah as we got closer and closer to war because they just didn't want to manage them. The, yeah. the empire had grown so big that it was really difficult to administrate. It was very spread out. It, it was huge. Yep. And they were starting with the, uh, with the white ones. Yes. Yeah. It'd be a while for, uh, for Africa. Most notable in this all, uh, all though is Ireland. There had been multiple failed attempts to give Ireland its independence. Yeah. The last of which failed specifically because of the outbreak of the war. It was uh, it was at Parliament in 1914 and failed to go through because war had broken out. Okay. And Ireland wanted its independence very badly. Yeah. This shouldn't be news to anyone who's heard nope. anything about Ireland. <laughs> and and they were very frustrated by the whole uh, failure of, of, of nationhood. Through the course of the war... You know, it was considered a formative event for almost all of what would become the, the Commonwealth nations. And that transition from empire to Commonwealth is really a function of the First World War, right? Yeah. You have Gallipoli as, as this formative experience for for ANZAC, for the Australian and New Zealand yeah. uh, Army Corps. You know, it's, it's to, to the point that ANZAC Day in... Uh, I believe it's May. I forgot to write it down. That's terrible of me. Is 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 a bigger deal there than than Armistice Day than, okay. than November eleventh in terms of uh, military remembrance. Well, I mean, once again, just like fascism, it's about the narrative. It's about giving an independent narrative to these countries. Canada had so many, so many battles that mm. we were the important ones, Vimy. right? Vimy Ridge. Yeah, Vimy. It, for, that's that for, is the big one. Yeah, for us here in Canada, it's Vimy Ridge. You know, most people are at least familiar with the name, and and many I would assume have have heard the story. Which you know, the short version is, uh, you know, the the British tried to take the hill and they couldn't, and the French tried to take the hill and they couldn't. No one thought that the hill could be taken, and then, then the Canadians, Canadians and uh, through a. a vicious battle a horrible battle where he took many many losses yes managed to take the ridge yeah where no one else could and 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 everyone else had completely given up on it yeah um and i mean you know in in one sense it's just a battle it was an important battle strategically but it's it's a battle there were many battles fought yeah from a national identity standpoint it made us uh stand out it made us important it, it, it yeah. brought us to the attention of the world stage there go the Canadians. They were the ones that were ma that managed to take the ridge. Yeah, and you know, I, I think in a lot of cases these national founding myths are so much more important to to the ones who who cling onto them than to anyone else around them. I'm, I'm sure that Vimy isn't necessarily considered uh, nearly as important to no. uh, you know a, a French education as it is to mm -hmm. a Canadian one, but that doesn't matter because what it does is give us a sense of independence, gives us a sense of uh, unity, gives us a sense of narrative. Um, yeah. And 
you know, especially here in Canada where we're a little bit overshadowed by American uh, yep. uh, culture, that that sense of, of national identity can be a little bit hard to come by, especially mm-hmm. with, with the strength of the American one. Yeah. We don't have a revolutionary war to point to no. as a founding myth. We have some very polite politicians who got together in Charlottetown, PEI. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the province that's known for Anne of Green Gables and Red and Sands. <laughs> it's it's the Iowa of Canada (laughs) (laughs) they all got together in Charlottetown drew up a very reasonable proposal yeah and then sent it to the British Parliament and asked very nicely if we could be made independent yeah uh, and were granted as such yeah Uh, and that's where Canada comes from it's a little bit better than that but you know that's kind of how we tend to think of it especially in light of it was real nice. It was. It was very. It was very well thought out. It was very, uh, yeah. Anyways, I, I. I don't mean to get down on Canadian history. I, I love it very much, and and it gets enough shots from other people. Mm-hmm. But we don't have Washington crossing the Delaware. No, we just don't. And so when things like and and, and because it was such a soft independence, because it was kind of a well, you're kind of independent. Yeah. Things like Vimy Ridge were important to uh, early Canada. Distinguish it, and separate. Yeah. And and Elevate. like I said, Gallipoli was really important for, for, for Anzac. Anzac, as well as for Newfoundland. Yeah. Um, they, they also participated at Gallipoli and were, were took just as many losses as as, uh, as the Australians and New, New Zealanders. That's all right. They definitely have a national identity. <laughs> the, the Australians and New Zealanders? No, the Newfoundlanders. Oh, the Newfoundlanders? Yeah, they... Boy, no one outside of Canada is going to appreciate that one. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I think... You know what? I, I, I find that um, not enough regionalism gets into this podcast sometimes, so it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm quite all right with talking about the, the very special place that is Newfoundland and Labrador. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> They're a breed apart, that's for sure, and I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Nope. But yeah, I mean, I, all of these all of these Commonwealth countries end up having these sort of formative events throughout the war, where the, it was just kind of a almost an inevitability, where there's going to be some point where somebody's going to be asked to step up, yeah, and it's going to happen in a way that's going to resonate with an entire nation, mm-hmm. because we we're talking about millions and millions and millions of casualties, and and that changes nations. Yeah, it doesn't just change people; it changes nations. Yeah, and and you know what what that means is that you know. At the beginning of the war, you have all of these Commonwealth countries that are just automatically at war because Britain is. Yeah. And at the end of the at the end of the war, only four years later, each of these dominions is at the negotiation table independently of Britain. They have their own representatives there. They're negotiating treaties on their own terms with various members. And it's 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 like night and day. All of a sudden Britain kind of goes, you know what? This is fine. You guys have this. You mm-hmm. don't need us anymore, really. Yeah. We still have a bond, but you're. we have to stop pretending like you're a colony. Yeah. And I mean, part of that is a function of this self-determination narrative that gets inserted into the Paris conferences, right? Yeah. Britain can't keep pretending like Australia is still kind Britain. of Britain. Yeah. Because they're not. No. They're their own place, and, and they have their own history now. Yeah. And it's not as though they didn't before, but... There's something different about that history that's made during the war. It's like a, it's almost rite of passage stuff. Yeah, trial by fire, all of that yeah. sort of kind of cliche, but still very true kind of thing. Yeah. 
and you know they they, they end up what, what comes out of that is forming uh, what's known as the imperial war cabinet which rather than the british command basically saying like all right need the canadians over there now go yeah it's an actual conference of of top commanders okay and you know that that independent role is formally recognized through the uh basically the founding of the commonwealth in 1923 but really what they're doing is just recognizing what's already happened through the the paris yeah. conferences in 1919 and all yeah, this, yeah, right? yeah it's just a it's just a final like you know what no this is really this, this is how it is now um ireland is still a problem for britain at this point yeah because even within this the sort of buy that they get for being one of the victorious parties yeah and even within this really racist imperial structure acceptable racism at the time in the eyes of the british yeah. yep you're good don't it's... worry you got it <laughs> china even giving all of these concessions to the british which i'm not sure that they necessarily deserve nope. um you still have a white country under british rule that wants independence that hasn't gained it yet yeah and that's just a recipe for disaster 1919 the anglo-irish war breaks out Ugh. runs for two years 1919 to 1921 this is where you get bloody sunday yep we don't we don't need to get too deep into it suffice it to say that really there's the hard feelings that were created out of this war have have not disappeared over the century and i i don't mean that as a as a criticism in any way and the discussions are still relevant to this year absolutely they are yep absolutely i I mean what you end up getting at the end of the at the end of the war in the anglo-irish treaty is irish independence and it's voted on uh by county which is why you get northern ireland there's these six counties up at the top of ireland that decide to remain which was part of the referendum that was part of the terms of the treaty if anyone wanted to remain part of britain they could yeah and that's why you have the split between northern ireland and uh, the republic of ireland yeah and by that point you would have thought that britain would have figured this out they would have learned i mean they've they've spent the last couple of years or, or sorry they've, they've spent several months uh dictating to the the shattered remains of of uh the austro-hungarian empire that they have to recognize this new country called czechoslovakia that they've decided is is an appropriate way to yeah create self-determination in the balkans and meanwhile they have ireland just sitting there and it's kind of like well do something about that do do something yeah you need to do something about it yeah and the irish don't wait around for it they they no. make it happen themselves in 1922 they granted egypt semi-independence after yep. similar unrest because you know they had just gotten out of the 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 war with ireland and they kind of went well we don't want to do that again and also they just want self-determination yeah. which is the whole point of all of this yeah we'll make them a nation state kind of client state yeah thing we still want the suez canal um (laughs) and then you get unrest in india as well there's uh something known as the amritsar massacre where again troops just turn guns on on non-violent protesters and and massacre just so many people yeah the the unrest in india was suppressed using something uh called the government of india act 1919 which basically gave them they made it seem like they were giving local governors the ability to govern that area. But in reality, what ended up happening was that it was British governors that were ruling those areas. Yeah. And it was all just a mess. I mean, this is this is all lead up to, you know, Indian uh, independence in 1947. Yeah. After the after the Second World War, it takes until then. 
the, the long, long slog that was Indian independence. And and there again, you see this 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 dissonance between uh, white and non-white mm-hmm. nations in the British eyes, and the the acceptability of uh, colonialism for the winners and the losers, and mm-hmm. just it it was such an imperfect uh, resolution to 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 the First World War. I mean, even Winston Churchill was super against indian independence Mm -hmm. like like super against it and and instrumental in the kind of quagmire that was middle eastern border yeah drawing again we we have a hundred years but but it's there there are definitely aspects that were seriously mishandled by the allies but yeah overall i mean the the first world war was was very good for those nations that are now part of the uh uh, the Commonwealth. Yeah, it, it meant a lot to us in terms of uh, founding mythology. It uh, you know gave us greater autonomy on the world stage, national identity. Yep, and 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 in in, in some cases it was it was really hard won. I, I, in fact, I'd say in all cases, yeah, the the idea of the the sort of founding myth of of uh, Australian identity being founded around the horrifying defeat that was Gallipoli is is just it's it's tragic it's it's a national mm-hmm. tragedy that they're built around and 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 that's that's not a cheap thing no um but you know it, it was uh nevertheless one out of the out of the conflict of world war one the last one that i wanted to talk about was the united states and i'd rather not dwell too long on them because they showed up three quarters of the way through the party anyways so yeah <laughs> but they were already profiting before that were they ever the united states place in the first world war is fascinating it really is pretty interesting um i mean the united states before that had for the most part been and and i think this is the most shocking fact for a lot of people had been uh an insular non-interventionist regional power very much so we have something called the monroe doctrine which basically says hey europe stay out of the americas we'll stay out of europe everybody's good yep that's a that's a rough summary but yeah really that's what they were talking about there was the roosevelt corollary yeah, she basically said, hey, you know, if things are happening in the Americas that aren't that great, we, we're allowed to fix them. Yeah. Just not European powers. European powers aren't allowed to step in, <laughs> which leads to things like the Spanish-American War. Uh, yeah. You know. So, you know, under under Roosevelt, you know, they started testing out some interventionism. Uh, Cuba, Puerto Rico. Yeah. Guam, Philippines come to mind. Yeah. But, I mean, at the at the outbreak of the war, they were officially neutral. They were selling to both sides. They were loaning yep. money to both sides. Yep. They, you know, Woodrow Wilson basically said that if 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 they can't loan money to both the uh, to both the British and the Germans, then they're not really neutral. Like it's in the interest yeah. of protecting American neutrality that they sell to both. Yeah, Woodrow Wilson was a weird, eh, not a weird guy. He was an interesting guy, but very contradictory. I mean, he ca- he campaigned in 1916 on, hey, uh, I kept us out of the war please reelect me to the president. Um, and people went for that. And then yeah. the next year he took them to war. Let's go to war. Um, a couple months later, it was March, 1917. Ooh. So, I, I mean, they, they entered the war mainly for, well, there, there were two main reasons. One was the, the U-boat attacks on yes. American vessels. The, the Germans had adopted a strategy of not being terribly discriminated about which vessels they were willing to sink, which, in, in the case of the Lusitania, which was a passenger vessel, which, you know, a, a number of 
American uh, passengers were killed on. Yeah, uh, that was that was the one that mainly gets pointed to. But yeah, there were like seven other ships that were that were sunk by. Oh boats. yeah, there was also the Zimmerman telegram, um, which uh, is getting more widely known. I don't know about that one. It's getting more widely known, but it's still a little bit like it's it's nowhere near the Lusitania in terms of like this is why they went in. A German telegram to the Mexican government or or Mexican government operatives was okay. intercepted. Basically, it said, "Hey, if you Mexico join the war on the German side, once the war is over, we will help you retake Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, all of those territories that you have recently lost to the United States." Oh. Uh, they printed this telegram in full and said, hey, this is what we're dealing with. You still want to stay neutral? Okay. Uh, so Congress approved the declaration of war in March of 1917. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is this is relatively late in the war for most of the players. Most of them have taken a lot of casualties by this point. Yeah. And I don't want to make it seem like it's an easy war for the United States, but we're talking about losses in the hundreds of thousands not in the millions and they never get touched on american soil no. and you know it's it's kind of and they had already a, made tons of money off of both yeah it's a little bit of a different animal the the strong economic growth after the war was i, I mean the roaring 20s were was built on the you know the the bloodshed in the first world war yeah they were selling well they, they were loaning money to every european power which yep. they expected to be paid back yeah while while the rest of Europe had an incredibly sluggish decade. The United States profited massively off of those hmm. loans, really put it into a much stronger economic position than they were uh, at the beginning of the 20th century yeah. by a long shot. Yeah. They end up at the at the table at the Paris conferences. Specifically, Woodrow Wilson goes to the table himself and yeah. and I, I mean he he published the 14 points in the spring of 1918 it was it was published long before the end of the war and in fact German surrender was based on terms that basically they would structure any sort of negotiations around the 14 points. They, yeah. they found them tolerable enough that they were willing to surrender to, to surrender. Yeah. And uh, we won't go through all the points. A lot of them are really broad. Like, you know, the spirit of self-determination must be considered. Some of them are very specific. Like we got to fix Belgium, you guys. <laughs> it's Belgium. Let's, let's put Belgium back together. We love Belgium. <laughs> fix um, it. And I mean, Wilson won the, the Nobel Peace Prize in 1919 for his work on this. I mean, yeah. the, the last point of the 14 points was the establishment of the League of Nations, and, mm -hmm. and it was established basically on his recommendation. Yeah. However, he really failed to uh, to prevent really strong reparation payments. Yeah. That was maybe his biggest failing at the at the table. And then ironically, he manages to, to convince all of these powers to adopt the League of Nations, to work towards, um, you know, freer trade, towards international rules of, of war, of, yeah. you know, all of this stuff that's really important to sort of this, this uh, you know, early 20th century progressive American standpoint. Yeah. And he gets home and the Senate refuses to ratify the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah. Meaning the United States doesn't actually end up being part of the League of Nations. There was intense opposition to the the treaty of versailles a lot of people saw it as as treasonous yeah i, I mean uh, theodore roosevelt was against it he, he published this long uh article on how uh how basically how useless the whole league of nations was going to be <laughs> the guy just frustrates me sometimes what a guy what a guy and i mean if anything what it convinced the united states to do was that 
hey, staying out of the war is really good for the economy and going into the war is really bad for international politics. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's keep not intervening. Yeah. Let's stay isolationist because it's working out really well for us. Look at what happened to Europe. Look at what happens when you get involved in defense treaties. Yeah. Look at what happens when you get into other people's business. Yeah. Let's stay out. Yeah. And that's how, once again, in, in uh, 1939, you get a United States that's unwilling to enter the war. Yeah. Wilson was broken by all of this. Quite literally, he had a, he had a stroke. Yeah. You know, he, he worked so hard to, to get everyone at the table to work together. Mm-hmm. Because it's really difficult when you have so many opposing goals. Even things as simple as you have three or four different claim, uh, claims on one piece of land by three or four different nationalities and like yeah we're looking for self-determination and every every nation a state yeah but if you have four nations that are going after one state which one's um self-determination takes precedent yeah there isn't a good answer for that you gotta pick and so that's the kind of stuff that they were hashing out yeah and he took a really strong lead and then he got home no love for it none whatsoever feel a little bad for Woodrow Wilson. I tried. He tried real hard. Yeah. I mean, you know, he flip-flopped at home politically about yeah. keeping people out of the war and then going into the war and all sorts of stuff. But, you know, he, he absolutely did his best. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's about all the powers that I want to go over. We covered a lot of ground today. Oh, so much ground. And and really, again, the, the theme for every single one of these is this is four years. The difference that we're talking about here is four Yeah four years that's just unreal to me mm-hmm. I, I i don't understand how so much can happen in so short a time there there are certain bursts you know here and there in history like 1848 yeah where um you know so much happens that you know all, all concurrently that's kind of like wow that was a crazy year but to look at the world before 1914 and then after 1918 you would think that like it had to have been at least a generation yeah no four years mindsets that changed borders that changed just entire systems of international politics yeah um yeah it's 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 really remarkable and i mean i i think what that comes down to is that it was essentially a release valve um you know yes none of this stuff came from nowhere no it was all already in place in 1914 waiting to happen yeah normally you hope that change like that happens organically not due to that much uh, disruption yeah and yeah, the, the, the difference that those four years made is, is enough that that conflict is, is a mark of an end and beginning of an era. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's something to keep in mind when, when you're looking at everything else that's got to do with, you know, this and that battle that happens in World War One, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, these, these treaties leading up to World War I and all that stuff. How transformative uh, such a short period of time ended up being. Yeah. So I think that's our before and after survey. Sounds good. Uh, anything else that you wanted to comment on or questions you can think of? I mean, we obviously didn't hit everything. And no, obviously and we kind of skimmed the surface of all of it, but I really wanted to give as broad a, to- uh, a look at it as I possibly could. Yeah, absolutely. We should talk more about World War One. We don't talk about it enough, I think, as a society. Yeah. It's important because it's a senseless war, and it's important to realize that it, it can happen to people who... I uh, really don't mean for it to happen. Yeah. We can't call all of these shots yeah. every time. Um, so it's important to do our best to be vigilant and kind of go from there. Yeah. Otherwise you get 
stuff like this. Yikes. Oof. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It was yeah, no worries. Really a pleasure to actually be able to sit down in the same room and talk history for a while. So <laughs> uh, maybe until next holiday season. Until next time. <laughs> No country that participated in the First World War came out unscathed. For such a short period of time, that four years was one of the most transformative in history. It was both a marker of the beginning of a new geopolitical era and arguably the first truly global conflict. In the long run, it was the death knoll of classic colonialism and a coming of age of the nation state. In the short term, it killed millions, toppled empires, and caused crisis and revolution, all in four years. Next time on HI 101, we'll be talking about the history of tea. That episode will be up on February 1st. Since HI 101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Oh.